Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have a sparsely Slavic populated episode. We have Marcus Golding, a PhD student from the History Department who hails from Venezuela, talking about the development of their oil industry. Um, it is a fascinating episode. We get into the idea of oil nationalism, how foreign capital influences political decisions, and brings us to a unsteady conclusion that we have today. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much, Tom, for having me here and for the opportunity. Of course, that's your first podcast experience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is my first experience. It, I'm a little bit nervous, but but I'm but I'm happy to be here. I'm this happy is to... like my fiftieth show, and I'm still nervous. So oh, there okay. you go. So it's something that doesn't go away. Yeah, exactly. That's okay. good. In common. Okay. So your first podcast, not your first experience, talking about Latin America. I'm no, sure. exactly. No, I I'm a PhD student at the history department in my third year. And yeah, uh, and before that, I did a master's in Latin American studies. So yeah, mm-hmm. I have been uh, talking and writing about Latin America for for a couple of years. And so. you've been at UT for how long? For just uh, the PhD portion, or yes, I okay. came to to UT in 2017. So yeah, cool. Yeah. And so you focus on Venezuela right now, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. My research interest mm-hmm. is Venezuela during the Cold War, okay. uh, and I'm specifically focusing on. The influence that uh, U.S. foreign capital had in the oil industry, mm. for those of you that uh, don't know, I mean, Venezuela has been an oil country uh, during the 20th century. That's mm-hmm. the main commodity uh, there. And so I, I have been looking at, uh, yeah, the cultural influence that mm-hmm. the, these oil companies left in the, in the country, but also trying to uh, understand the rapport that these uh, U.S. companies build with the population. Mm-hmm. Because if you see the history of oil in Latin America, uh, starting in the uh, 1920s, you start to, uh, to see an oil nationalism going through, s- swept through uh, the, the region. So this means that foreign capital didn't have a very welcoming stay in the hydrocarbon sector in Latin America. Uh, starting with Argentina in 1922, uh, you have uh, countries either establishing state monopolies in those industries or uh, expropriating foreign assets, uh, oil, oil fields or refineries. But then with Venezuela, you have a different situation. Uh, oil, uh, foreign interests, interests in Venezuela uh, yeah, um, start to start around the 1914. Mm-hmm. That's when you, you start having the first people from Shell and other right. big oil companies coming to the country and exploring, seeing if there was oil. But actually, it was in, in 1922 when uh, finally these companies realized how much oil there was in mm-hmm. the country. So they started investing a lot of resources in in in, in Venezuela starting in 1922, and then nationalization. Of the old industry takes place uh, very late in the in 1975. Uh, mm-hmm. So, in comparison with other Latin American countries, the the stay of of foreign capital in Venezuela was very long. We're very especially if you mm-hmm. contrast that with what uh, what was happening elsewhere in the region, where you you have you had this oil nationalism and this more hostile 
stance towards foreign capital. So yeah, I'm trying to also understand uh, the the relationship that these oil companies built with the population to stay for so long in the country. And do you think because of just like the insane amount of oil Venezuela has that were foreign uh, companies just more aggressive in getting into Venezuela, or is there more openness domestically? Yeah, I think uh, that's an important point. Uh, the fact that uh, first, oil became the main commodity in the 20th century to fuel our world. Mm. So uh, when um, American oil firms and British fi- uh, oil firms found about the riches that Venezuela had in terms of oil, uh, they definitely start uh, pouring a lot of investments there. But there is an important uh, watershed, I would say, uh, in this story, uh, because from 1922, when the first operations started in the country, until 1936, oil companies basically operated freely with not not many constraints. Mm -hmm. And during that time, Venezuela was ruled by a dictator that ruled for basically almost three decades. So all companies were uh, closely related with this dictator and this dictator uh, protected them. Uh, So they operated carelessly and without any consideration for the concerns of the population. Mm. But then this this dictator died and then in Venezuela you start having a political opening. Uh, You start having citizens uh, organizing the creation of political parties. And they start start having uh, these groups, domestic groups, start having a lot of criticism towards the actions of oil companies. Very similar to what uh, you, you can see in other places in Latin America at the time regarding foreign capital. Mm-hmm. And then another crucial event that happens is in 1930, uh, 1938 when the Mexican hydrocarbon industry is nationalized. Mm. And this sent a strong signal to foreign capital in the region that this can actually happen. Before, executives of these firms didn't believe that Latin Americans could do this. Uh, this. And, and so uh, this happened, though I must, with a caveat, because uh, the first nationalization happened in Bolivia the year before in 1937. But the Mexican one was more important because it was a, a central um, confrontation between the, the uh, Mexican labor laborers and uh, these um, foreign capital mm-hmm. uh, and um, foreign uh, firms, right? Sure. So then you, 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 you have that happening. And then in 1939, you have the onset of World War II. So at this moment, at this conjuncture, you have all become crucial right. for the Western Hemisphere. So, uh, and this is the time all these internal and, uh, and external factors that I just... Uh, uh, told you, uh, pushed the American oil companies to uh, and the British uh, oil companies operating in Venezuela to shift their uh, strategy towards the native population. They realized that if they don't address the concerns of the population, they could face the same um, the same um, outcome mm-hmm. as happened in Bolivia or, or or Mexico. So that's the time when they start making huge investments in the country's infrastructure, uh, infrastructure, agriculture, uh, national industries, but also um, making a lot of investments in the in the oil fields and paying uh, Venezuelans the highest uh, salaries in the in the in the sector, as well as providing them with a lot of social benefits. And that's when uh, you start having a 
different sort of relationship between Venezuelans and foreign capital. Mm-hmm. And so you see World War II is kind of the inflection point of oil as a commodity, right? So before that, I think it was coal heavy. I think that was just, it was simpler as how things were done. The flexibility of oil wasn't really understood. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, uh, if, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, the transition to oil-based and oil-based economy uh, took time. Uh, it started uh, at, the, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, but definitely uh, with the onset of World War II, uh, most armies had uh, switched or were in the process of switching to um, fuel, uh, oil-based fuel uh, energies, and so definitely oil became a crucial component if the allied uh, the the allied forces were going to win uh, mm-hmm. during World War II. So. Uh, so yeah, I I don't know if I answered your. No, yeah. no, I think that's fair. Just think you just like structure because I think oil is just kind of seen as this thing that's always been like this important commodity, and it wasn't in exactly. the century not the case. Exactly, no, no, definitely in the nineteenth century it was not the case, as, as you point. Actually, the the first discoveries of of oil for for energy or for illuminating places, mm-hmm. uh, use it as as, as light, uh, started in at the end of the nineteenth century, but the transition, right. the final transition took place in the 20th century. Globalizing as a commodity it uh, wasn't really thought of. Exactly, exactly. So what do the post-World War II periods start looking like then? Oil is becoming this incredibly important thing. You have Shell. I assume other companies are far more involved in Venezuela at that point too. Um, it, so Venezuela is just saying, give me more capital. We're getting richer and richer. Yeah. It's all good. It's an interesting uh, situation What ha- uh, that happens because uh, you don't see that strong nationalism that you would see uh, for other commodities in Latin America. Uh, for example, copper in, mm-hmm. in, in, in Chile. Um, you don't see that same strong defense of the natural resources and, and that antagonism mm-hmm. towards foreign capital. In Venezuela, that doesn't mean that there wasn't uh, that there was not a nationalism. It, there was. And actually, you will start seeing that starting in the 1940s, the state is going to start increasingly taxing more and more uh, the foreign oil industry. And, mm-hmm. and, and those resources are going to uh, finance uh, the modernization of the country, the, the uh, construction of vast uh, public works, uh, works across the country. So that, that's all going to take place. But, uh, but parallelly, or, or, uh, but at the same time, mm-hmm. you will have a different relationship with foreign capital that is that criticizes foreign capital but doesn't see it as completely bad right because Venezuelans uh, or, or the state in, in, in this regard saw oil as essential for Venezuela to, to develop before oil Venezuela was a pretty uh, poor country that relied on uh, agricultural uh, goods uh, especially coffee and yeah ma- mainly coffee uh, but then oil came as the big solution right. to, to make the country jump ahead, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're going to start uh, having a, a state that's going to be increasingly assertive, but at the same time fostering a good business environment for these American uh, oil companies to come and, and develop their operations mm-hmm. in the country. So you, you start having this relationship between the state and the, um, and, and the American oil companies. I'm currently uh, interested in the activities and investments that uh, the concrete investments that these uh, oil companies uh, did in the country. For example, in in the oil camps, and this is very similar 
to other examples of oil operations in the country. But in Venezuela, it's in, in, yes, very interesting. Uh, first, because uh, the amount of benefits that these oil companies gave to the workers. Mm -hmm. uh, one important thing that, uh, that we have to have in mind is that before this day that I told you, before the end of the 1930s, you had um, racial hierarchies in these oil fields. Mm -hmm. So but what, what, what does that mean? That essentially native workers were paid less. Right. And they didn't have, and, and, and in another currency, and they didn't have the possibility of a, 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 to go to the top in, mm -hmm. the, in the corporate hierarchy, to rise uh, through the different corporate levels, right? But this started to change in, 19, in the 1940s. These companies started to open the corporate hierarchy to any Venezuela, and they start hiring more mm -hmm. Venezuelans. So these start uh, taking place, and besides that, they start paying them uh, similar wages as foreigners. Aside from that, they start giving them like educa free education for their children, healthcare services, entertainment. Mm -hmm. uh, so a host of different benefits that they didn't enjoy before. So that's an, an, another component that is interesting to understand in mm -hmm. the relationship between locals and, these, uh, and, and foreign capital, right? And the other part that I'm currently exploring is those investments that, that these oil companies made beyond the oil industry. For me, this is kind of striking because usually you would ask you why they, they were concerned or focused on investing outside the, the oil industry, right? Mm -hmm. But they start making considerable uh, investments outside uh, the, the oil industry. One of those was in infrastructure that indirectly served them because uh, in, in that way they could uh, transport their own goods and the, pro and the, pro and the uh, oil products that they, um, yeah, that they produce, right? Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, that benefited the, 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 the country because these roads that they built were op open to the public. It, they were not uh, right. fo focused only for, the, for private use. So that was one of the components. They built roads and, and bridges. Uh, but at the same time, they were, uh, there was one uh, oil company that was a subsidiary of Standard Oil of New Jersey called the Creole Petroleum Corporation. It was the biggest one uh, mm -hmm. during this period that I'm uh, telling you from the 1940s to 1975. And they were concerned about the low agricultural output in the country. Historically, Venezuela had uh, problems mm -hmm. uh, producing enough uh, foodstuff, right? So they decided to get involved to try to uh, raise the, the output of, uh, of ag agriculturally produced goods. And in order to do so, they teamed up with other oil companies and the Venezuelan state to create a corporation focused on industrializing agriculture in Venezuela. And not only agriculture, but also this uh, company uh, was going to focus on cattle ranching, fishing, and creating a network of um, depots where you, you could uh, store the, the goods and also a network of uh, supermarkets. For example, the first supermarkets that came to Venezuela, the idea of supermarket, came through oil corporations. Mm. So, yeah. But at the same time, um, they also invested in national industries by uh, purchasing locally produced goods for for their own use in the industry, like pipes, like cement, and other kind of things. And and finally, they also had a very important investment in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this was very common for U.S. foreign capital, not only in the oil industry, but having these philanthropic organizations. 
and they devoted their attention to science and and, and education. For example, in the 1960s, they had a budget focused on upgrading the labs of uh, the universities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for example, this com company, the Creole Petroleum Corporation, also got involved in founding one school, a school of engineering. Mm. So they were pretty invested also in fomenting local talent. So yeah, I'm going to stop there because I have no, to... No, I mean, that's fascinating because all those can be seen as sort of like these liberal ideas, like we're trying to lift you as a country, but also like we're trying to protect our investment. If you guys don't have roads to ship the oil, you know, totally. food to feed the people, we're going to be caught screwed here. To totally, and that's a that's a very good point because, again, these investments were not altruistic. They were right. not doing that because they wanted to see Venezuela... Uh, be, be out of poverty. Uh, they saw that their investments, th th these were long-term investments, mm -hmm. and they, these investments were going to benefit them as well. So, as you said, I mean, sure. having roads, having bridges, having a human capital mm -hmm. that could run the oil uh, um, operations, having people eating more food, all of that... Um, would benefit them as well. Right. So, yeah, that this is an important point. It's not an altruistic that suddenly these were enlightened mm -hmm. uh, corporation, but they were practic pragmatic. Mm -hmm. uh, they saw that uh, in order to preserve their hold over the most prolific oil reserve at that time, before the Middle East became right. the, the top one, uh, they needed to uh, take uh, action and take into consideration the concerns of the local population. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. I mean, it's actually, it's very forward-thinking. You think they would get as much out of their investment as possible and get out of there. I mean, because that, that's kind of like, that's sort of the idea of embedded liberalism that people want out of globalization. Like, yeah. protect the people who are not advantaging while, you know, profiting as much as you like. Exactly. No, and yeah, it's, I, I think, I would say from what I have researched so far that the Venezuelan case is pretty interesting because I think it's unusual. Mm -hmm. If you see the story of other foreign enterprises, especially... Uh, American capital in other parts of Latin America, that has not been always the case. Mm -hmm. They always have gone there to, you know, um, profit as much as, much as right. they can, but uh, without giving anything back and then and then leaving, you know? And I think, that, well, so this is my understanding, at least, like oil is a vertical in general. When oil is discovered in place, obviously some foreign big company is going to come in, they're going to extract it, put in pipes, whatever. The issue in terms of organizing labor or actually employing people domestically is it's pretty skilled labor. It's not like coal where you can just kind of have, you know, families and family generations working yeah. in there. It's kind of hands-off. It's a lot more corporate. Like you said, they actually yeah. put an emphasis to hire Venezuelans up their corporate ladder. So you think there's actually uniqueness in how labor was treated in Venezuela compared to other countries? Yeah, I would say so, uh, but with certain ca uh, caution because, again, uh, the Venezuelan uh, labor movement in the oil sector was pretty active mm -hmm. during the late 1930s, especially before the oil companies started to shift their their strategy towards lo the, the locals. Uh, but then during the 1940s and the 1950s, they were also very, very active. Uh, but uh, definitely, I think uh, there was a, a, a change in the way they were treated because they were the best paid positions mm -hmm. uh, in the country. They, they, that, that, that was like the dream. And not only at the blue collar level, but as you said, at, at the white collar level. And one of the moves uh, that these companies did that I haven't seen elsewhere where they operated is 
opening the corporate la ladder mm -hmm. to, to, to Venezuelans. So you start having Venezuelans operating not only uh, as workers at the blue-collar sector, but also as, uh, managers, and then eventually as CEOs. So you have certain cases in which you have uh, Venezuelans being uh, having the top position. But by the 1950s, you have Venezuelans in the board of directors already. Yeah. So clearly, this was a move that um, benefited the old companies vis-a-vis the population and the perceptions that the population had towards uh, what they were doing. For example, to bring you an, an, another case uh, that I have, uh, I have uh, read about, uh, mm -hmm. the case of Saudi Arabia, um, they started also developing their, their old industries uh, heavily uh, starting in the, in the late 1930s, 1940s. And, but they, remain, uh, th they left these um, uh, ra racial hierarchies mm -hmm. in place. They didn't take any s steps to have locals rise through the ranks right. until the nationalization of that industry. But in Venezuela, that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Venezuelans opened their their uh, the foreign foreign oil company opened the the corporate ladder and just started. And by for example, by 1944, uh, uh, for one of these corporations, the Creole Petroleum Corporation, they had around 93 percent of Venezuelans hired. So, wow. so my uh, you can see this from a certain point of view. For the moment, I think that. This served as some sort of illusion that the industry was kind of national, mm -hmm. because you have more pe right. more Venezuelans, more locals, running the, the 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 industry, and I think that served the old uh, companies because that helped them to deflect any nationalist attack that could threaten their hold over right. uh, Venezuelan oil. So and so, when do the politics start shifting? When does it start moving to the extreme left that we characterize Venezuela as? Well, that that took a long a long time because uh, what happened is that uh, in 1975 the nationalization of Venezuelan oil takes place. Why there were different factors? There were external factors, internal factors. The external factors is that you had the OPEC at that time, mm -hmm. and uh, and you had the oil crisis of 1973 that strengthened producing countries. Mm -hmm. So this this gave. St uh, producing states an incentive to national, uh, nationalize their own industry because also, in the case of Venezuela, uh, foreign capital started a process of disinvestment in mm. the Venezuelan oil sector s uh, starting in the 1960s, uh, okay. mid-1960s. So, uh, so they had more reasons to, to nationalize the industry. Uh, but it's interesting, I'm also, part of my dissertation wants to see the nature of that nationalization because, again, it's not as famous as, for example, or it's not famous. It's mm -hmm. not as, for example, the Mexican oil nationalization right. that it was a, like, that rallying cry. A landmark moment. Exactly, a landmark yeah. moment, right? So, uh, so I want to analyze that because it was not a political, or it doesn't look like a political decision, more like of a technical decision. Mm. In the sense that, political in the sense that you didn't advertise us as a nationalist uh, struggle against mm -hmm foreigners. It was more of a technical decision in which Venezuelans were going to take full control of the industry, but without relinquish their connection with foreign capital. Hmm. That mean to, right, th right. The idea was to uh, keep cooperating mm -hmm. with foreign capital in the development of the new national-owned industry. Mm -hmm. So that takes place in uh, 1975, and this new industry, uh, the, the new national-owned industry called 
PDVSA, eh, Petróleos de Venezuela, eh, this eh, old company is gonna inherit the corporate values, the business um, vision of its predecessors, of the American and British oil companies. In fact, the people, the, the people that, the Venezuelans that were trained by Creole, by Shell, by mm -hmm. Gulf, are gonna be the ones running the new mm -hmm. uh, national industry. So they, they, they came with the same mindset as, uh, or a similar mindset as, as their previous employers. So this is gonna be the uh, main uh, principles that are gonna guide the new um, national-owned Venezuelan industry. And it's interesting because soon enough, you're gonna have a conflict between the central state and this, uh, and PDVSA. Mm -hmm. You're gonna have struggle between uh, both of them because PDVSA is gonna, uh, it's gonna try to preserve its autonomy mm -hmm. from the state. They don't want the state encroaching on their, on their autonomy. So in, for example, uh, in, in, 19, in the 1980s, Venezuela is gonna have, it's gonna start facing many economic difficulties. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways in which the president of that time, one of the presidents of that time, figured out they could um, address this economic crisis was to take money from the from PDVSA. Uh, and he could do so because it was a nationally owned industry and mm -hmm. he's the president. But, and, and, and he did. He, he ordered the executive of PDVSA to turn their part of the, the profits to, to the national coffers in order mm -hmm. to, um, yeah, to, to, to solve the, the economic crisis that was taking place, right? So after this, uh, take pla uh, this situation took place, the executives at PDVSA learned that they had to move any, any profit that they could abroad, mm -hmm. have as little as possible in the country, besides the taxes that they paid to the state, of course, because they knew that future uh, presidents could make the same request and take. So you start having in the 1980s, PDVSA start, uh, it starts to behave more of, as a, a multinational. Okay. They, they start shifting their investments abroad. They start buying refineries mm -hmm. in other uh, countries. They start to, to expand abroad, actually, mm -hmm. and moving most of their profits abroad as well. So mm -hmm. you, you start having a, a, a petroleum corporation that starts to behave very autonomous, uh, autonomously and very detached mm -hmm. from the state and what was going on in the country. So this is going to create some sort of alienation um, right. towards the end of the century. Uh, people are going to see the PDVSA as an elitist institution mm -hmm. that only cared for, uh, for, for profits. And, and, and eventually, uh, Hugo Chavez, the populist strongman, is going to uh, capi capitalize mm -hmm. on these feelings. And he's the one that's going to try, uh, he's going to completely reform PDVSA. And actually, in 2002, he faced a coup uh, and that was organized by the executives of this mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, corporation and all in other sectors of society. But since we're talking about oil, so yeah. And, but at the end, Chavez prevailed, they failed. And that's going to push Chavez to basically uh, fire all these uh, blue collar um, uh, workers and replace them with loyalists. And th that's when you start seeing a really uh, change, a really shift 
in the purpose of the Venezuelan oil industry. Mm -hmm. Before that, it operated very efficiently. It operated as as the biggest international oil corporations. Uh, They diversified their their, uh, investments, and they were one of the most profitable uh, enterprises Mm -hmm. in, 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 in the world. But then Chavez decided to shift completely uh, and uh, finish that business philosophy mm-hmm. and reorient the old industry to more social uh, goals. And so he's going to start using the old industry to finance a huge amount of social programs uh, for the poor. And eventually, uh, this is going to work well uh, as long as the prices were high, right? Mm-hmm. But eventually, the prices collapsed. Right. And... Not, and basically, the, what what, uh, what that brought was the, the collapse of the Venezuelan oil industry. And nowadays, um, the Venezuelan oil industry is completely in tatters. Right. I mean, it's funny. It's my like when you think about Venezuela, you think of this country that always just like had unbalanced books, its economy was in shambles, whatever. But if you read something in the 80s and 90s, it's not viewed that way. And, I mean, it kind of reminds me to um, – it's a Slavic connection. I'm going to yeah. bring in Russia a little bit. No, it reminds me to a degree the relation between Gazprom and the big oil companies in Russia, how, you know, we're separate, but you're still my piggy bank at the end of the day. And for now, their budget is priced when oil is at a minimum of $40. If it goes below that, Russia will be facing the exact same problem. I assume Venezuela just had a higher benchmark. Totally, no, no, totally. Uh, actually, in two thousand four, two thousand well, around two thousand. No, 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 no. I think it was two thousand eight, two thousand seven. You're gonna uh, have well, you just start. Uh, you, you start uh, had a, a, bo- a commodity boom in mm-hmm. two thousand four, two thousand five, but then oil prices went up uh, drastically mm-hmm. in two thousand eight. So you're gonna have an oil boom from roughly two thousand seven to two thousand thirteen. Mm-hmm. Oil prices are gonna. I remember. I think in 2010 it was like 120 dollars a barrel, something yeah. like that. it was insane. So of course, when the oil prices were so high, uh, the Chavez government had so many resources to finance anything that he wanted, mm-hmm. and that's one of the sources of his popularity because he used a, a big deal of those resources mm-hmm. to address many social problems. My image of him is like handing out refrigerators. And uh, stuff for like example, that. So, that's yeah. what, what that was one of the. Networks of clientelism, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that he developed and that made him so, so popular. Uh, but at the same time, there's going to be a period of huge corruption as well. Sure. But, you know, when you have some so much money and everyone is doing so much money and there's corruption, it, no one's going to yeah, pay right. too much because yeah. everyone has, mm-hmm. you know. But, yeah, then eventually, and, and that's what he, he did. They, they usually booked the prices of oil in a minimum, but they usually got more than that. Mm-hmm. So they have plenty of resources to... to uh, to, to use right, but yeah, uh, what you were saying it's interesting because uh, for other Venezuelans, uh, you know, we ha- we have always been in an economic crisis mm-hmm. since I mean since I was born since and before. Right. And actually, Venezuelan uh, uh, the economic problems of Venezuela started in the 1980s, and that's when you start seeing the, the division that I told you about PDVSA going one way and mm-hmm. the state trying to handle uh, and trying to deal with. Uh, um, and a difficult economic uh, situation. And actually, that was the case in the 1990s. Uh, uh, there were there, there was some economic recovery, but not for that long. And then the first years of Chavez in power were not also very good. 
actually Venezuela put it, its economic crisis on hold, mm-hmm. starting, I think, in, in, as a, with a commodity boom. But we're back again in that economic crisis and in a worse, worse mm-hmm. uh, situation that, uh, that in any other uh, period, I think. Lili Chavez satisfied like we had a leader at that point. When you have economic crisis and no leader to look to, whether they're skilled yeah. or not, that's when it actually becomes like a nationwide crisis, I imagine. Def- definitely, definitely. And one of the things that we have to understand in the case of Venezuela is that Venezuelans have a particular relationship with oil. Mm-hmm. We are a society, for example, one of the, and there's a lot of literature in the uh, political science field about uh, rentier states mm-hmm. and the effects of oil or the distortions that oil brings to, to the economy. So, for example, uh, in one of those huge distortions that Venezuelans claim they have a right to is to a very, very cheap oil uh, ga- gas mm-hmm. prices, you know, okay. they they pay cents, cents of a dollar mm-hmm. to fill their tanks, and for many decades, governments were afraid of um, of raising the gas prices because they were afraid of the rea- the popular reaction because mm-hmm. people felt it was an entitlement because they were mm-hmm. an oil producing country and they had a right a share on, on that. But of course, that brings a lot of distortions because this was the state subsidizing cheap prices. Right. So you have a lot of lo- uh, losses mm-hmm. every year uh, that the state incurred. Um, that's the most obvious uh, example. But then you have other other distortions that you can see is uh, monetary policies. For example, devaluation and overvaluation of, of currencies. Uh, for example, before Venezuela... Uh, economic crisis started in the 1980s. Venezuela had a very overvalued uh, currency. So that, so that means mm. that they could import right. anything that they wanted. And this hurt a national industry mm-hmm. because it was tougher for them to, to compete, right? Mm-hmm. But then from that, when the economic crisis uh, hit, uh, you start having the devaluation of of the currency as well. So that means that people were... Their, their money was mm-hmm. worthless. And they probably got used to the middle-class lifestyle. and, and ex- yeah. Exactly. So that's another distortion that you that, that we have faced uh, throughout all, all this, uh, well, th- throughout this century of mm-hmm. or more of oil exploitation. Um, and, and finally, well, another, another weird distortion that we have is in general regarding to utility services. Mm-hmm. For example... Electricity is subsidized. Sure. Subsidized. It's uh, and you don't pay basically much for electricity in Venezuela. The same with water, mm-hmm. uh, and it comes from this idea that we are a rich nation and that we're rich producing oil country, so we are entitled to certain subsidies. But eventually, the one that is losing is the state mm-hmm. and the people, because all that money that is gonna be subsidizing that could go into, for example, uh, reinvesting in the infrastructure for, mm-hmm. for electricity or for the network of pipelines or right. whatever, that it's not the case. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there has been huge consequences. And just uh, recently, after this economic collapse, it's that I believe we, we have to see in, in, into the future, right? But that Venezuela has been more open to the idea of we have to raise the price of gasoline. It mm-hmm. cannot be that cheap. It's absurd. Right. 
And I mean, I think that's a problem every developing country runs into. The underpricing utilities keeps people happy, but then you never invest in improving them. Exactly. And America's facing that with water, infrastructure, electricity, what have you. Exactly. So, and so how do you, I mean, you, the picture you're painting is that kind of the cultural impact of oil and the political leadership put Venezuela's situation is now. How do you compare it to countries like, I mean, Saudi Arabia is obviously the classic monolithic example, but like Norway or Indonesia, they haven't had these sort of, Indonesia less so, but Norway, I mean, they di Norway diversified is always the story. Yeah, uh, from what I know of the Norwegian case, and I, I, I don't know as, sure. as, as extensively. As you can extensively. make it up. I doubt our listeners know it. No, but actually Norway is like the big example when you bring like, see how people can manage right. their own wealth very well. And by the way, I'm, I think, I believe that because there, there's this idea that natural resources, in this case in Venezuela, oil is like a curse, you know, because mm. it has brought us all this dependency on, on oil and it's not good. I don't agree that it's a curse. I think at the end, uh, a natural resource is good or bad, uh, depending on how that society manages mm. that resource. Uh, I think Venezuelans made important investments thanks, uh, thanks to oil. I think the country... Uh, grew a lot in, in every way, uh, thanks to oil. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have faced awful economic uh, situation, crisis, derived from how oil has been managed. Especially, we, we have had uh, governments that has focused on, instead of saving those oil revenue for harder times, mm -hmm. they have squandered it, right. you know? And that ha has happened constantly in, in Venezuela. So mm -hmm. you have the Norwe Nor Norwegian case in which they build like their own fund where they constantly put money there and it has worked perfectly. From what I understand, when uh, Norway discovered oil, they already had an established economy. Mm -hmm. So oil just came to add right. into that. So they were not dependent on, on oil as Venezuela has had. So that that's a key difference, but of course you have also mm -hmm. cultural and institutional differences that also make both cases. Right. I mean, it probably does and doesn't lend itself to cross-analysis just because no commodity is the same as oil. You can never get it amass as much wealth. And, I mean, you don't have any power as much as, like, a copper dealer. You do to a degree, yeah. but people look elsewhere for copper or even, even rare earth elements. There are people are going to find, you know, there is a sensitivity, but it's not that long-term. Exactly. No, and also one thing that you have to take into consideration, Latin America is the big social inequalities that you have. And that's something that is always going to be there influencing how you're going to uh, use oil because you can either... There's this impulse to use those resources to address current uh, social problems. And that's really important to do. But at the same time, you can go beyond that and start using those resources to build like a clientelistic network. Right. So that's when you start de deviating mm -hmm. from the true purposes of addressing the structural problems of the country for just building your own following and perpetuating yourself in mm -hmm. power, right? So th the social inequality issue, it's always going to influence how you use oil because pe there's going to be an immediate demand mm -hmm. for people to see, okay, we have all these riches. How that translate into wealth for my family, for me, right. for opportunity, for mm -hmm. more... That in the case of, I, I wonder, uh, Norway 
maybe when they discovered oil was not that right. case, right? Yeah. So. The story I've read at least is that like Norway actually brought in economists from Iraq and Middle Eastern countries oh, to be like, cool. how did you like how did you guys screw this up? Like what can we do differently? And I think that it was to diversify. Were there even when things were great in Venezuela, was that just too quiet of a voice to be like, hey, you know, we should probably move in? No, you know, you know, that has always been like the idea. Uh, from the moment you had oil, you had uh, Venezuelan statesmen and intellectuals debating what to do with oil. Mm -hmm. There were those that said that, you know, we should focus on our agriculture. We should diversify into agriculture and use oil to support mm -hmm. that sector of the economy. Interesting. Then there were others that said, no, 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 we have to use the oil to modernize and build a modern industry mm -hmm. to, uh, to um, start uh, the industrialization of the country. Right? And in both cases, you have this idea that we have to diversify. We cannot rely on oil. We cannot rely on oil. But you know, the spell of oil is so strong that right. at the end, all the efforts toward that direction were not enough. Right. Were not enough. And, and yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Venezuelans didn't achieve that di diversification that could have allowed them to uh, maneuver when the oil uh, prices collapse. Mm -hmm. And that has been yeah, the long dream, uh, long desired dream in, in the country. But, but no, I mean, it has never been achieved. And yeah, again, I think it comes to the way in which the oil has been managed mm -hmm. by, by Venezuelans because... For example, you have uh, Saudi Arabia in which, I mean, they have, or they also depend on oil, but I mean, but the country is rich, but mm -hmm. they are under an autocratic, I mean, yeah, it's, right. you have the autoc mm -hmm. autocratic component there as well that you can suppress popular demand. And that allows, allows them to first use those resources to um, diversify the investments of the oil company, but also for their own benefit. Mm -hmm. So I think they haven't faced a similar crisis as Venezuela because they don't address popular right. yeah. uh, concerns. You don't have to be delicate about uh, yeah, it. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, I think that's a complicated thing too yeah. is outside countries, like, we need to make these places stable. And it's like, great, Saudi Arabia is super stable. That's like, that is not what anyone, and, you know, Venezuela is in stable degree, but it's because their people actually can organize and, yeah, exactly. you know, like, have their voices heard. Exactly. And, but, I mean, the thing is, when you're just so monolithic and one good it becomes so easy for a politician to just be like no i'm gonna use it better than these guys and there aren't the institutions to totally protect that totally and know uh, and definitely there is a, a strong literature again in, in mm -hmm. political science arguing about the influence of oil over institutions i think uh it's kind of nuanced because you have that literature that tells you that it basically erodes institution institutions hmm. and tends to the, the presence of oil. The presence erodes. of oil, okay, and tends towards authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. But in the case of Venezuela, oil was crucial for the foundation of of democracy uh, in 1958, mm -hmm. and for most of those decades until basically the last couple of three years, last three years, four years, that finally Venezuela can be cataloged as a mm -hmm. uh, dictatorship, right? But so there, there's, uh, it's, it's, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. I think oil has had, uh, had brought many benefits to, to, to the country, but at, at the same time, many ills. Sure. So again, is this idea of how to manage that amount of wealth in a context of social inequality, 
So yeah. And uh, so this is just kind of a, I think we're kind of moving towards the edge of our time. But yeah, definitely. I think just like generally, so obviously a lot of my focus is on Russia. So people are asking me like about the election, about hacking and stuff. And I'm just like not terribly interested in what's going on right now because I don't know what it means. It's yeah. so much more interesting to look at the past and not be definitely. influenced so much by what's going on right now. Venezuela must be that times a million. How, how difficult is it to get these ideas of actually how things were structured when you just have this like blunt modern view of how this is going to end up? So l let me know if I understand your question. So you're asking uh, exactly. So sort of how does the present situation influence how you're looking at the, the past? Oh, okay. Oh, definitely. Well, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, the lesson that, I, that I'm seeing here is what happens when you basically decide to use the oil industry exclusively for political purposes? Mm -hmm. Because I agree that uh, all this wealth um, has an important role in addressing uh, the big social problems that the country has. But you cannot use the company to run these social welfare programs right. because it's not the competence of mm -hmm. that company. It's going to do it wrong. Uh, um, inefficiently, mm -hmm. and there, it's going to get distracted from its main purpose of producing oil and selling it. Right. So that's what happened during the, the Chavez regime and the Maduro regime, and that's the explanation why the oil industry collapsed, because at the same time you were not in reinvesting in the industry. Mm -hmm. So you have a lesson there of the uh, extremist side of using oil recklessly uh, without any kind of institutional control. And on the other side, you have what happened with Pedreza before Chavez came, that detachment from the population and how this company did not develop some sort of a strategy mm -hmm. to also uh, get involved with its own population. So you have two, two, two lessons there's, uh, there to, uh, to learn mm -hmm. that, that explains uh, the current uh, economic crisis. But then the, the last thing that we could talk about is what comes next uh, in terms of the Venezuelan oil industry and its economy? Um, I think that the country will need a lot of international support to rebuild mm -hmm. the oil industry. Uh, but now I think Venezuelans also, we have to start thinking about what kind of future uh, do we want. We, we, right. we want to still uh, depend so heavily on oil or would are we open to other kind of economic models, for example, developing renewable energies, mm -hmm. because uh, at the same time, we have global warming. We have to be mm -hmm. conscious about that. And that, I mean, uh, these hydrocarbon economies making the, the globe warmer and warmer. So we could have another alternative in which in the short term, yes, uh, we resurrect the oil industry, but then gradually we start mm -hmm. shifting our, and making those investment in, in the renewable energy sector to start shifting to another economic model, because otherwise we will keep being trapped on this dependency right. uh, and exposed to this uh, economic crisis and at the same time that we are polluting the <laughs> world more and more. So, yeah. Complicated. Complicated. Yeah, yeah I mean, so. you know, it's companies should be profit-seeking because obviously you, do, you don't want to hear that in a country where there's extreme poverty and whatever, but profit. when you do the duality of being social welfare and seeking profit, you're going to do both poorly. Exactly. That's 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 my point. I think uh, if if uh, corporations are are socially invested, uh, they they have they have more guarantees for their long term investment mm -hmm. than if they only come to take the riches and go out. And but yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, 
companies are there to make right. profit and invest. Yeah. I mean, that's their their purpose. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Well, this is really fun. I really enjoy this. No, Tom, thank you very much. Uh, it has been fantastic. I yeah. I feel very happy to just come here and talk about what Absolutely. I'm doing with you and the crew. So. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm excited where this goes. Hopefully we'll talk sometime soon. Definitely. Definitely. Thank, Thank you. you. That was Marcus Golding, everyone. I'm coming to you at the end of the episode, which I never do because I'm here to grovel. If you like our podcast, if you like me, if you like Michelle or Matt or whoever's on this, please like, rate, and review. I would have preferred to live my entire life without saying that, but it is important. It gives our podcast visibility. It can lead us to get sponsors and some other cool stuff. So again, I am desperate. We're all desperate. We love you. You love us. Please like, rate, and review. Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Like, rate, and review Apple Podcasts. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.